You're listening to episode 14 of the Practice Brave Podcast. Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Welcome back to the Practice Brave Podcast. Today, I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Haley Shevner. Haley is the creator of Pop-Up and Pop-Up Pro, and I'm excited to have her here today to talk about all things pelvic organ prolapse, what it is, what it means, what to do, and who's here to help. So Haley has done a great job along with her co-founder of spreading great information for both women and uh, different practitioners who are working with women who are navigating pelvic organ prolapse and also trying to pursue athleticism. So if you have prolapse or you're coaching women, this is absolutely something that you need to be aware of and know how to guide in both your messaging and your uh, exercise advice. So is absolutely an episode that I think that you will enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Haley Shevner, and today we're going to be talking about pelvic organ prolapse and going over a lot of the questions that end up both in my inbox and especially in Haley's messages, because a lot of women have no idea what this is. They don't know the changes that happen to their body. They feel a lot of guilt and responsibility of, did I do something wrong? What should I do now? There's no clear answer that women get oftentimes from their doctors or coaches or peers. So Haley is here to try to help navigate what this is, what this means, and um, just some provide some better information and resources. So Haley, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Bree. I'm excited to be here. So Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you have created professionally and just a little bit about yourself personally. Yeah. So my name is Haley Shevener. I'm a strength and conditioning specialist and personal trainer uh, working in San Francisco. And then I also have an online business. I've been a trainer since 2005, but my interest in working specifically with the perinatal population really peaked throughout my own pregnancy and then especially in the postpartum experience that I had with my son who just turned five. And throughout that process, I developed something called pelvic organ prolapse, which we're going to talk a lot about today. And that experience really rocked my world. I had never heard of it before, or at least I had heard of it in a very different way than I was experiencing it. And that led to this whole new passion to work with people that are managing athleticism and pop. Because when I was diagnosed with this condition, there was no discussion about what one could do if they were more athletically inclined. And so I created or I co-created a resource called Pop-Up. And Pop-Up serves to educate both people with POP and professionals with POP. So very similar to what you're doing, Brie, in that space. And it's really been an expression of how I can take what I really wish that I had had at that point and give back uh, to people that are currently going through that or working with people who will be going through that. Absolutely. Definitely become who you needed and how so many different people need. And I love that you have really narrowed down your focus of what you're talking about because so many people have benefited from 
the relatability factor too, I think of, of what women are looking for. So to, I guess, dial things in a little bit more, can you tell us what exactly pelvic organ prolapse is? Yeah. So pelvic organ prolapse, or as you'll probably hear me refer to it as POP, generally just refers to a descent of the pelvic organs within the pelvic cavity. And that's a pretty vague description. And I think that part of what gets confusing about POP is the description is so vague. And so you could have a degree of descent that would be pretty minimal in terms of what your previous norm was. And you might not notice that at all. Or you might be noticing some more substantial descent, which you might be able to visualize externally, or that might come with some symptoms that you were noticing. So really, POP just describes what starts to happen when we get this descent of the pelvic organs. And so uh, that could be something like the bladder, the rectum, the uterus, so where really anything within the pelvic cavity can descend from its original position. Right. So can you... Tell us a little bit about what that descent is and how it's graded and what the spectrum of symptoms look like for women experiencing prolapse. Yeah, so there are different scales that people are using to measure POP. Most of the time, you're going to see a scale that measures things from zero to four. And zero would be that there's absolutely no descent. So there's no movement from where the pelvic organs were at one time. They're still there. And then a grade four would generally refer to when there's quite a bit of descent, you're going to see quite a lot of either vaginal wall or the uterus itself or the cervix coming out through the vaginal opening. So what that scale is looking at is the descent towards the hymen. So that entry point of the vagina. So we're looking at different positions or different places in the vagina Um, that can be moving. So you could have the bladder, which is going to be kind of on the front or top side of the vagina. We call it an anterior wall prolapse. Uh, You could have the rectum coming downward or coming close to the vaginal entrance. So you're going to have a posterior prolapse if we're talking about that. The uterus is generally referred to as a uterine prolapse, but we could also refer to that as a central compartment prolapse. And so, or sometimes you'll have multiple things. Maybe your bladder and your rectum seem to be moving. It's generally not just a singular thing that's occurring. It's kind of this spectrum of shifting that's happening. And I think as I'm describing this, if if your listeners aren't super familiar with this, it might be, I know when I first heard about it, it was like, oh man, there's something falling out of my vagina. And that's kind of how we've referred to POP in just a like conversational way, not in a medical context. Uh, And I think it's really important to remember that our organs are moving all the time. So my lungs are moving within my body. My intestines are moving within my body. We kind of have this idea that everything just stays still. But as I'm describing POP, I want to make sure that we're really familiar with the idea that things are actually frequently moving and that it's okay if there is some movement there. We can really get uh, worked up about the idea that everything is just suddenly falling out as if there's nothing to kind of support that from the bottom. Right. And so it's not that everything is falling out. It's just that it's pressing up against the vaginal wall, right? Yeah. It's just kind of moving downward towards the vaginal entrance. If you have a significant cystocele or bladder prolapse or anterior wall prolapse, it's not that your bladder ends up outside of your body. What you're seeing, if you're seeing something, is the anterior wall of your vagina coming closer to itself. So almost like if you could 
If you had a sock that was getting turned out, you're kind of looking at that tissue there, not the organ itself. It's still behind that vaginal wall. It's still connected to something. Right. I think that's such an important point to know because so many women are just not familiar with what their vagina looked like before kids, after their first kid, after their second kid. And then when they're having symptoms, they're down there with a mirror going, is that normal? Is this what I'm supposed to, what am I looking at? We have no context of what is quote unquote normal. And I would love for you to touch on this because I know you are so great at talking about this particular topic. (laughs) Oh, girl, we're going to go to the normal combo, huh? Okay. we are. Okay, here we go. So this is where language and the consideration of language becomes really important because if we are going to answer for ourselves whether or not your vagina, my vagina, somebody's vagina is normal... And we kind of have to have an appreciation for what that word even means. And so when I'm thinking about the word normal, something that I'm considering is the significance or the number of people that might be experiencing this. And so if we're talking about a chapter like the postpartum chapter, we're looking at a really high prevalence of people who by the time that they're of the age that they would be having a child or that they have had a child, they tend to have some degree of descent. It's actually quite abnormal or infrequent or uncommon uh, to see someone who is 25, 35, 45 years old that has had no shifting of their pelvic cavity. And so we have to kind of, we've, people have tried to define where the line is. So we tend to agree that there's some degree of descent that's considered normal, but then when does it become prolapse? And that line is really blurry and has yet to be fully established. There's some literature that suggests that by the time it gets to a grade two, which is generally defined as one centimeter, either before or after the level of the hymen. So usually you can see that that that's when maybe it starts to cross over into what we would consider prolapse. But even the discussion of prolapse or the definition of prolapse is not entirely defined. And so you'll hear a lot of people come back from their doctor and their doctor has said, this is normal. You're fine. Get over it. Or you don't need any pelvic floor PT or whatever. And the issue with that is A, it's super dismissive, (laughs) and B, we're not really getting that education of, hey, this might be a departure from your previous norm. This might also be an anticipated finding or a very common finding at the stage of life that you're in, and... It doesn't have to mean that you're, it doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that you won't be able to function, but it also could mean that you might really benefit from some support. And so maybe we get you a physical therapy referral and we go see how everything is functioning. If we're having a conversation like that, that person doesn't necessarily feel dismissed. But getting back to the original conversation about normalcy, um, I think that's a loaded It's just such a loaded term, right? We all want to be normal. Nobody wants to say, I have an abnormal vagina. (laughs) Uh, Because when we hear abnormal, we think bad. We think pathological. We think that we need to fix it. And so for me, having this discussion about POP includes having a discussion about what kind of changes in our bodies we accept as kind of part of this process doesn't mean that in accepting that things shifted or changed that we have to accept that we are struggling or that we have to accept that there are 
negative ramifications to that, but it really warrants a conversation of how the body does change after we go through these different life phases. And when I say life phases, I'm generally talking about pregnancy, postpartum, or even just experiencing gravity and load over time, right? Like my face is kind of wrinkled because I've made a lot of expressions <laughs> and uh, I've also succumbed to the forces of gravity that are placed upon me and my pelvic organs have shifted. And, you know, one of those things is something that we generally talk about. And one of those things pop is not. And so that label of normal becomes even more loaded when we are not talking about it. I love everything you just said. And I think that so many women spiral seeking information. Like, is this normal? Is like, what did I look like before? And then what did I do? Like what caused this? And so that spiral just leads to so much mental and emotional turmoil. And then also the fear mongering, because if you Google prolapse, like, which is why you have an entire business that counters the Google of prolapse. But when you Google that people are trying to like reverse engineer and figure out well, what did I do that caused this? So can you talk to us about what can be some potential causes for prolapse? Yeah. One more thought that came up when I was hearing you talk is I think that when we ask if we're normal, I think what we're really asking is, am I okay? Right. And because we don't have information and education and support in the changes that do occur during pregnancy, postpartum, and quite frankly, just in life, we don't know if we're okay. And often we don't feel okay. In terms of what the causes are, so another like really loaded term, (laughs) we don't really understand all of the myriad factors involved with POP development. But what seems to be the case is that you've got either some trauma occurring to the support structures of the pelvic floor that tends to be associated with the development of POP, or you've got just a general kind of consistent weakening or stretching or loss of support there. So essentially what we're looking at is something, the components of the pelvic floor have ceased to support the pelvic organs in the way that they once did. And that can happen from either muscular weakening or constant load on the ligaments, or if there is some trauma to those structures, which is especially going to be prevalent in a vaginal birth, for instance, then we're looking at a structure that like if part of that system is detached, say, from its bony attachment, then we're looking at an opportunity for things to sink or fall below that. So the most frequent risk factor or the most prevalent risk factor is going to be vaginal birth. But it also seems that pregnancy itself is a contributor to POP development, which is why we do see that people who have exclusively cesarean births are at a much lower risk of uh, having POP, but they are not exempt from having POP. Or why we'll see people who have never been pregnant or postpartum will also develop POP sometimes. Connective tissue disorders can also be a leading uh, contributor there. So if I have connective tissue that is not quite as robust as someone else's, then over time or in response to significant demands, I might have some drooping there. So basically, we can kind of think of it in a strength and conditioning context and say, this is this was an imposed demand that was not able to be met by the pelvic floor in some capacity, either right. from passive or active supports. I love that. That was so good. <laughs> I need to really want to write down that last sentence (laughs) because well, I think it makes something that seems 
either really broad or very overwhelming, confusing, very specific to the terms that many of us as coaches and athletes can understand a little bit easier. Totally. Because we can't see the pelvic floor, it seems like it's this mystical unicorn creature that like we just do not understand it. But when we can think of it in terms of, okay, other muscle systems or analogies like support structures beyond the body, then it becomes really logical why this happened. Like a lot of people ask, you know, how could this happen? And I know I asked this myself, like it seems so shocking to me, but the more I learned, the more I realized like, oh yeah, this is a really reasonable adaptation to the stresses that have been imposed on the pelvic floor. Right. And if you're listening to this, just know like you are not some rare person managing prolapse. It is very prevalent, whether women realize it or not. So whether it is officially diagnosed or not, there's so many women that are managing it, especially the generations that are a little bit older than us has been told, like, it's just a very, that's just what it's like when you're a mom, or that's just what happens when you get older. There was not so much awareness and education and support around it either. Totally. Okay. So how can prolapse be managed or maybe even prevented during pregnancy and postpartum to be very specific? Yeah. So that's kind of the million dollar question. And it's one that (laughs) we get asked about a lot via pop-up. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem that there is a way that we can absolutely prevent or stop prolapse from occurring. And again, remember that this is an adaptation to a demand that is imposed. And so when we become pregnant, we anticipate that we might have some broadening of the abdominal wall, for instance. And we are talking a lot about diastasis. I know you are talking so much about diastasis. And we, we also realize that our skin has to stretch. We are, understand that there are going to be stretch marks. We might gain fat. We, we understand all of these changes that are occurring in our body. And we've, there's been a movement to really embrace and accept or at least acknowledge that those changes occur. And to an extent, those same changes occur during pregnancy to the pelvic floor. We can have some broadening of the, basically the hole where baby would come through during, so the urogenital hiatus, where the baby would come through during a vaginal delivery. We're going to see some broadening of that hole just because of pregnancy, because of that load, right? You've got a six, seven, nine, eight pound load <laughs> on the floor. And it's going to receive that load by doing this really amazing thing by kind of yielding and allowing for that to occur. And so to a certain extent, we can't stop that from happening. We can't walk around inverted, you know, that might not even help, but we can't <laughs> upside down the whole time. We can't offload entirely. And what we know about load is that the pelvic floor, just like any other muscle system responds to load. And so it actually probably needs load to continue to, to build its adaptation to, to do that job. So having said that, can we prevent it at all? Can we stop the, the changes that occur entirely? No, it doesn't seem like we can. Now, can we mitigate some of that severity? Potentially, right? So that's when we start to look at different factors that are involved with birth. So it seems to be that there's a pretty significant association between forceps use and levator ani avulsion, which refers to when the musculature of the pelvic floor detaches from its attachment of the pubic bone. And so... 
with that, we start to think about, okay, well, are there particular interventions or circumstances involving birth or even involving someone's body that might make it more or less likely for them to find themselves in this situation? And if so, should they choose a different route or can they even choose a different route? Would that matter? That research is quickly developing. There's some really exciting stuff happening there. Someone is developing a system to basically stratify risk and to better understand, hey, I'm, let's say, 33 years old and I have one previous child and I have this going on with my body and you know this, these were the circumstances involved with my genetics, right? Um, what might be my risk of either having a really kind of rough labor and delivery that might contribute to that loss of structural support or not? And so as we kind of understand a little bit more about what does and doesn't impact muscle trauma and then subsequent development of POP, Um, We'll be able to better kind of assess that. For right now, it's still not always clear. And we also have to consider whenever I bring up birth stuff, I know that that's a very loaded topic and it definitely was for me. It's really important to remember that even when we try to avoid all of those risk factors or those potential risk factors, we can't always do that. So we might say, and there's a huge movement now to talk about getting rid of forceps and that forceps are always a problem and that forceps should never be used. And there's so much weight behind that. And there's so much truth to the potential that forceps can be associated with a lot of trauma, for instance, but they also might be the thing that saves your baby or that saves your life. And so it's not just the pelvic floor. It's not just the baby. It's not just that experience that we need to be looking at when we're thinking about pop or any other kind of birth consideration or trauma or circumstance. We really need to be open to the reality that there are just so many things going on and we can't seem to make definitive, you know, right or wrong calls there. Right. It's so hard because we all want to do the right thing and make the best choice and whatnot. But I, I always have to come back and tell myself and the people that I coach that you control the variables that you can, but ultimately there are so many things associated with birth and motherhood that are just outside of our control. And that is a really hard place to sit in, especially for like the athlete brain minded people. Yeah. And then we start getting into like, that was just pregnancy, right? And labor. (laughs) And we get into postpartum considerations and We don't have a ton of clear research there. There's been virtually no research on postpartum pop in terms of the development of it. But what we might assume is that if that muscle system or the pelvic floor support system has been compromised just because of what it has had to do and support over time, then that might not be the best time to really load it up before it's had a chance to become a little bit more resilient to that loading. So it's just the same kind of idea. Like if you understand that your abs have kind of stretched out to this point where they might be struggling to function in the way that they once did, then that might not be the best time to do 40 pound decline sit-ups at three weeks postpartum. And that's an extreme example. And to some extent, I'm sure there are more extreme examples that we could point to. (laughs) (laughs) But we have to consider, again, there's no clear research on this, not because it's, 
it just hasn't been studied yet. And it would not really be an ethical study to be like, well, we don't know, but let's just load it up and see what happens. (laughs) But we do want to consider like with any other injury or consideration, we would appreciate the healing timeline. We would appreciate the strength acquisition that would be required after say an ACL tear or any kind of deloading period, right? Like we don't have a person deload for six, seven, eight weeks plus, you know, maybe they've been on bed rest for three months and then like, all right, it's time for the PRs again. Like we understand that there's a process involved in getting somebody back to doing what they want and what they need to do. And so while I really shy away from saying something like, well, if you're, if you do too much too soon, you're going to cause pop because we actually don't have that research to support. I don't have evidence to support that. And it's just a messed up thing to say to somebody, (laughs) but we can't really say that, but we can ask ourselves like, Hey, is this, does this make the most sense based on everything else that I know about the body and adaptation and what? what I've just gone through. And I think in the postpartum scenario, especially when we're considering people who are more like on that athlete brain spectrum or high on that spectrum, they're not always making these decisions with tons of clarity in terms of like, you know, at six weeks postpartum, when I'm exhausted, when I feel like I have no identity, when I feel like I don't understand how to relate to this new baby that I've created, when I miss my friends at CrossFit, like that might not be the time when I'm making the most, I don't want to say rational, but most guided decisions for me. And that's, that's okay, but let's appreciate the totality of this experience right? We don't really consider the pelvic floor. We don't talk about it. Most people have never heard of something like prolapse or levator avulsion or any, those words are, are foreign. Right. And so we just don't have the context and it just, it's very hard to make decisions that are the best for you at that time. Um, or your athlete, if you're a coach, if you're not really sure what's going on there. Right. And it's such a, I mean, it does boil down to you can't always just listen to your body because I think it's going to say, well, you're, you're good. Like you've done this before. Like you'll, you'll build your capacity and not whatnot, but it's so tempting to go back into those environments and almost give yourself the benefit of the doubt. But it's also knowing that just like with anything, we have to be mindful. We're not trying to get injured. We have to build up our capacity so that we're decreasing our risk of injury with our fitness choices, not increasing risk of injury. And I think it all relates back to pregnancy and postpartum. Is it, can you should you, is it worth it right now? Or what's your level of readiness? And I think a lot of people want to assume that when they go back, their level of readiness, their baseline is good. Well, maybe it's good, but their body has still been through a traumatic event, which is pregnancy. You're in a deconditioned, different state for like nine months, 10 months. And then postpartum, even more deconditioned and a baby has come out of you. Like you're just, you're not in a state of true athletic readiness, pushing boundaries. Totally. And so with that, like, what do you suggest for exercise? Do you tell people that they should just do a lot of kegels and have a super strong pelvic floor? Yeah. I mean, I think you've seen all of my information for people. It's pretty limited to that. So yeah, no, uh, <laughs> we're sarcastic. You guys We're sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Please don't infographic quote me on that one. No, no, um, it won't happen. <laughs> so 
whenever somebody asks me, hey, I have prolapse, or I think I might have pop, or I want to decrease my likelihood of getting pop, what exercise would you recommend for me? I think we always have to start that question with, well, what do you want to do? What are you currently doing? What kind of, you know, I could suggest that you do, you know, bridges and bear crawls or whatever. It was just too right. that popped into head. Um, but if you're someone who likes to golf, then those activities are not necessarily going to really speak to you. And what I want people to understand about managing pop via exercise or being able to have an athletic, more active life with pop is that we have so many options. There is no pop specific program or exercise or thing that we need to be doing or that everybody with pop has to do. The closest thing to that, like you mentioned, would be pelvic floor muscle training, which does not always look the way we think it will. So we tend to think, okay, that's a Kegel program, which has you know 10 sets of 10 reps, and I'm just gonna squeeze as hard as I can. Um, that's not always the case. There is research to support that if you want to specifically strengthen the pelvic floor musculature, you generally need to have a specific program for that, which looks like pelvic floor muscle training or some type of contract and relax system with the emphasis on whatever your specific strength or function deficits are. So yes, that might be a component of that. Most people can benefit from some portion of pelvic floor muscle training, and that can look a lot of different ways. Uh, But in terms of more global exercise, there's not necessarily a magic ticket. It's really looking at, okay, well, are there things that we're doing that might be more likely to contribute? Is there a way that I'm doing something that might be more likely to contribute? Some people, there's, there's some limited discussion in the literature about, say, posture or alignment or breath and all of that. Uh, and we can start to kind of play with those variables and see if those kind of eliminate or mitigate someone's symptoms or allow them to have a more, like, appropriately calibrated response to load. So my pelvic floor might function better if I'm in this position versus the other position, or that might not be true. So we can start looking at all of those things. And what I love doing is helping somebody keep doing the things that they're doing, just maybe in a slightly different way. And sometimes not even in a different way, right? There's also, I think there's been so much great focus on how we you know, modifying is awesome and you don't have to feel bad if you're going to modify and it's how you do things that matters. But I'm starting to see people that come to me that are so cognizant of what they're doing that Mm -hmm. they just can't do anything anymore without it to death. And so I actually end up telling those people and, and we realize in this process of assessment that like for them, they need to stop trying to fix things. <laughs> right. Trying. Right. Like be a C student. Like you don't have to be like trying to be totally. A plus plus all the time. It is. I see that all the time. And one point I do want to touch on that you said is not everybody needs the same kind of thing. So I think we often associate any kind of pelvic floor dysfunction with, well, it's just obviously weak and it needs to get stronger, but that's not always the case with prolapse or anything. So can you just touch on that really fast before we keep talking about exercise? Because I think having that association of weak, it really does a disservice to how we feel in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. So it's not always the case that someone with symptomatic POP or bothersome POP, whatever, however that bothers them, has a weak pelvic floor or has a pelvic floor that is unable to meet the demands of the activity because it is not strong enough to do so. And that could mean a lot of different things. It could mean that somebody has the capacity for strength. So when they do, you know, when somebody assesses their strength in an isolated situation, they're getting a five out of five, say, on this ranking scale. But then when it comes to doing the activity, we're not really seeing that support come into play. So they might have some sequencing concerns, or they might just be in a position or in a scenario that doesn't allow that system to work as well as it could. So some people are going to be people that are trying so hard and they're gripping so much and they're putting so much effort into that pelvic floor engagement, either consciously or not. And those people might just not be able to get that same response that they need, that they could get if they could allow things to basically chill out a little bit and become a little bit more reflexive. So sometimes it's that it's not a strength deficit, it's just a function deficit or it's a a function shift that's occurring that's not allowing somebody to access that strength. So yeah, Yeah. I think that's good. I just wanted to clear that up because... You know, we do talk about strengthening and progressing, but sometimes that that just needs a little bit more context. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is that strength or weakness or whatever is not always the driver of someone's symptoms. So it's not always that someone is feeling symptomatic because their pelvic floor is not strong enough. And if we set the expectation that strength is all we need, and that person gets to a point where they have acquired greater strength, and they're still experiencing symptoms, or they still notice that they have pop, then we're putting that person in a position where they feel like then they're out of options because they've done everything at that point. They did the thing that they were supposed to do. They got stronger and it didn't solve the problem. So we need to understand that there are so many things going on with the pelvis, the brain, our experience uh, that reflects or that influence how how we feel and how we perform way more beyond strength. Absolutely. So what kind of support can women implement to improve or at least manage their symptoms? What are our options basically? Yeah. So we have so many options, which is really (laughs) exciting and also really overwhelming sometimes. And so I really like to, and we with pop-up like to encourage people to see things from a really holistic lens. And that doesn't mean like collagen and wheatgrass. And like, when I say holistic, I don't mean (laughs) spirituality and crystals, although that can be part of it. Do you? (laughs) But I mean, looking at the whole person, right? So maybe holistic. Yes. So for me personally, what was really powerful was kind of combating the mental health aspect of it. For me, pop meant a drastic shift in my perceived identity. It meant a change in how I felt about my marriage or how I felt about my body. It meant kind of confronting all of these ideas that I'd had about birth and how I had to do it right. And then I still tried to do it right and I didn't do it right enough. And then I ended up with this thing. But anyway, there was a significant for me mental health component to managing my symptoms. And so A, we're looking at mental health support that could be something as simple as, you know, expressing your feelings or talking to a professional, either a counselor or therapist, Um, working with someone in a relationship therapist context could be really key, gaining more social support, 
uh, that can be really powerful. So we're looking at it from a mental health perspective, in addition to a physical health perspective. So I generally will recommend that if someone has access and the means and can swing it in any way that they can, and they're open to it, to please go see a pelvic floor physical therapist. It's not yet the norm that we see people just getting that six-week quote-unquote clearance and then heading their merry way to APT, but hopefully we're kind of trending that way as awareness increases. But that's going to be a person that's really the best equipped to help you understand your function from an internal perspective. They're going to be able to do an internal exam if that's something that you're open to, although I will always mention that you can have a, you can gain a lot of insights If the internal exam is a hurdle, don't let that be what stops you from going to PT because there's so much to be gained from external exams or even just talking to someone, uh, honestly. But so a PT, a pelvic floor PT or a women's health PT is generally the person or physio if you're in other parts of the world, that's generally going to be the person that you want to see. A urogynecologist, which is going to be different from a gynecologist or an OB-GYN, is someone that specifically deals with prolapse and pelvic floor support concerns. And there's this idea that in order to see a urogyn, you have to be someone that's interested in surgery, which that might be the case, but that's definitely not the rule. Urogynes can also do a lot of things conservatively, one of which is the use of a pessary. And a pessary is something that basically functions as a sports bra for your vagina. And it's an internal support for your pelvic floor. So we're inserting something kind of like a tampon. Um, There are different shapes, different sizes. Most of them are made with silicone. And that kind of functions to give you a little bit more support to things so that they're not coming downward as much as they were. And that can be a huge lifesaver. It can drastically improve someone's symptom experience, and it can give a little bit more support to those tissues. And there's even some uh, some research that points to a potential prophylactic benefit. So if we're not having those tissues just kind of hanging with a little bit more laxity, if we're having them supported a little bit closer to the range that those muscles can fire most readily, then we might be able to get a more long lasting benefit, even when the pessary is removed. That research is still ongoing and we don't really know that much at this point. Um, But that's super exciting for me because there's this idea that pessaries are exclusively for a, like an older crowd, a post-menopausal crowd or that they're only for people that like can't have surgery because they have other or comorbid conditions. But pessaries are for any age person who needs a little bit more support or who could benefit from a little bit more support. So those are some options there. And really, when we're thinking about support, we have to think about all of the ways in which pop affects someone. And so for me personally, I know that it affected my sex life, for instance. And so working with someone in a professional context on that can be really helpful. So your team might be, you know, or it might be that like, you need a break from being able to do all the things. So maybe your house cleaner is part of your pop management team, right? So or your dog walker or whatever, like right. the, the person who helps you with your baby every now and then. Like this team can be really diverse because pop is really diverse. And the way that we experience it is going to be so different from person to person. And it occurs on a spectrum. That's maybe the biggest thing that I'm hoping that people understand or that I'm really trying to 
propel out there in the universe about pop is that we have exclusively been taught or generally been talking about pop as like a singular thing. Like, oh, if you have pop, I know this about you. You must be struggling. You must be dysfunctional. You must be X, Y, Z. And what I've learned in working and seeing, I have a Facebook group with almost 6,000 people in it, is that there's so much range in the, the experience or the physical or emotional function of people managing pop. And so we really need to consider, well, what do you need? And look in, inward and say, well, what I'm really struggling with is how it's affected my body image. Okay, great. Let's focus on that. Or what I'm really struggling with is that I just hate the way that this feels at the end of the day. Okay, well, awesome. Maybe a pessary is a great thing for you. Or I just don't really know what exercise is appropriate for me. Okay, great. Maybe a pelvic floor PT or a pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach is the person for you. And maybe all of those things are for you. Or maybe none of them are, right? There's just so much variance because we're all so different. Right. Oh, Haley, this is so good and so helpful. And you know, you obviously have created so many different resources for both just women and then for practitioners and coaches working with this population. Where can we learn more about the resources you have created and just more about you in general? Yeah. So you can go a couple of different places. Popuplifting.com is going to be the website that houses our online courses of people with pop and professionals interested in working with people with pop. And then on social media, you'll find us at Pop Uplift. And we have courses. We've got some free downloads that you can access. We're in a building phase right now. Our vision is that we have resources that are specifically catered to each life phase that someone might be processing um, or individual concerns with pop that someone might be processing. And we're just kind of getting started. And so my vision is really to see it expand over time. So hopefully by the time you find this podcast episode, maybe (laughs) down the road, we continue to expand. We're really trying to pick up some momentum because I just see such a need for this kind of information to exist. And I know firsthand what it's like to be up at three in the morning on Google or on the Facebook groups and just trying to really understand your body and what's happening and whether or not you have hope for the future. And the short answer is that you definitely do. And hopefully our resources can be a small part in what gets you there. Awesome. Well, we we will absolutely link all of Haley's information in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here. If you guys have questions, do not hesitate to reach out to me or to reach out to Haley directly. And we can figure out a way to, to help you navigate your next steps and what your support system looks like. Thanks, Haley. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Make sure you head over to my website, www.briannabattles.com and find my free and paid resources. And make sure to connect with me on Instagram at Brianna.Battles. Talk to you soon.